My name is Dr. Tram Jones. Starting in December 2019, my wife and I lived in Haiti. Recently, given the current insecurity, we are out of the country, but we continue to support and work with our partner clinic, Lesquati Moon, with its 53 employees on the ground in the city of Quadibouquet, Haiti. It was 2010. The devastating 7.0 earthquake had just rocked Port-au-Prince. Bill Clinton had also just been named the UN Special Envoy to Haiti, and he was testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Here is what he said. I have to live every day with the consequences of the lost capacity to produce a rice crop in Haiti to feed those people because of what I did. Nobody else. What exactly does Bill Clinton have to do with the rice industry in Haiti? The story, it's pretty complicated, but let's delve in. This is a story with a lot of tentacles and side tales, but up front, let's try to tell the basics of the story. In 1995, with pressure from the United States and Clinton, Haiti lowered its tariffs on rice from 50% to 3% some of the lowest in the developing world. In the coming years, cheap American rice flooded the Haitian market. Haitian farmers couldn't compete in price. Quickly, Haitians switched to American rice, and the rice industry in Haiti almost died on the vine. I will admit, as I started doing research for this episode, I was biased. I studied finance in college, thoroughly enjoying my economics classes. It gave me a beautiful framework for a world of efficient markets and increased well-being. And a central belief of most modern economists is free trade. What does that mean? That means that tariffs are a bad thing. A tariff is basically when a country charges foreign businesses extra taxes to sell their goods. So, for example, if the United States steel industry can't produce steel cheap enough, the U.S. could say, well, all the steel that's produced overseas and brought into the U.S. will be taxed to the point that is cheaper to buy domestic. Well, that sounds pretty great, right? Helping homegrown businesses. Well, in concept. But if you go through the rigmarole of theory, it's actually felt to be counterproductive. U.S. consumers end up paying much more for steel, and that's whether you're building a house or you're shopping in a store that had to pay more for steel. So that cost is passed on to the average Joe. And the theory says that it's actually more advantageous for the U.S. to focus on things that it does better and more efficiently, say, creating Google, Apple, Microsoft, etc., and leaving the steelmaking to a country that can do it on the cheap. That's the idea. And this was my mindset coming in. But like I said, this story has a lot of twists. The first and biggest wrinkle is subsidies, farm subsidies. Since 1933, the U.S. government has propped up the American farming system. And I know the way I said it makes it sound biased, but there were and and still are legitimate reasons for this. The farming industry in America is important, not just for its economic impact. In fact, the farming sector is actually fairly small in America. It only makes up about 0.6% of the economy. But the ability for a country to feed itself is an existential issue. Think about the war in Ukraine and Russia. Together, these two countries produced about a quarter of the world's wheat export. Now that's all fine and dandy, until a major disruption like a war roils its availability. If the U.S. is ever faced with a war when we can't import, we need to have the ability to feed ourselves. So, we've subsidized the farms in our country. In fact, many, many developed countries subsidize their food supply 
as a matter of national security. In rice, it's no exception. Worldwide, subsidies and border protections account for three-quarters of the income of rice farmers in wealthy nations. Now, Haiti knew this. In the 80s, Haiti had put a limit on how much food could be imported from other countries. First, because they wanted to produce in the country, but second, because they knew everyone was producing rice at an artificially low price. Now, if anyone goes to Haiti today, chances are that the dinner will include rice and beans. When I lived in Haiti, I ate it almost every day. But this wasn't always the case. In the 80s, Haitian diets included very little rice. The vast majority of the calories came from corn and starchy roots like potatoes. These were homegrown, and the small percentage of the diet that was rice was also grown in Haiti. But then the world had an idea. They were seeing Asia starting to develop their economies with factories and industrial production. Here's Bill Clinton again, speaking on what that policy was. Quote, Since 1981, the United States has followed a policy, until the last year or so when we started rethinking it, that we rich countries that produce a lot of food should sell it to poor countries and relieve them of the burden of producing their own food. So, thank goodness, they can leap directly into the industrial era. It has not worked. End quote. The U.S. decided that Haiti should not worry about food production. If they could access cheap food, then their workers could go into factories and boom, we would have an economic revolution. Haiti was pushed and compelled first to get rid of import limits on rice, and finally, that fateful decision, in 1995, Clinton pushed them to get rid of their tariffs. Now, as we talked about, tariffs are taboo in economics. So we should all be cheering this, right? Well, That might be true if markets worked right. But in reality, as we said, U.S. rice was massively subsidized by the U.S. government. Between 1985 and today, the U.S. government each year has given between $400 million and $1.6 billion per year to rice farmers. This allows them to sell their products at well below the cost it takes them to produce it. And Haitian rice producers just couldn't compete at all. To start with, Haitian farmers had a lot of things to deal with that Americans didn't. They didn't have nice storage facilities to store rice so they could put it on the market year-round to keep prices stable. For them, as soon as the harvest came in, they needed to sell it within the next one to two months. And they didn't have access to loans like U.S. farmers did to invest in better seed, fertilizer, and equipment. They didn't have government insurance that might cover them in a drought. They needed to mark up their goods so they could have some saved up for that. And crucially, Haitian rice farmers had an average of really only two to six acres to cultivate. American farms were hundreds or thousands of acres able to take advantage of economies of scale. But they still might have been able to compete until you add the coup de grace. American farmers were getting paid large sums of money by the government to make their products cheaper. No one else in the Western Hemisphere took America up on the offer to lower tariffs. Only Haiti. In fact, Even developed countries generally won't make trade deals with the U.S. if it's subsidizing an industry. The average country in the world has a 43% tariff on rice. Haiti's today is now 0%. So what happened after this? Well, probably the obvious. The American rice wasn't just a little cheaper, it was a lot cheaper. And Haitian consumers, they're not stupid. They bought the cheaper rice. Predictably, Haiti's rice industry faltered. But if that was all, it really wouldn't have been that bad. After all, recall that most Haitians weren't actually eating that much rice at the time. But suddenly, rice was much cheaper than corn, than potatoes. And suddenly, these same rational Haitians turned to rice. It went from a minor part of the diet to the staple food. 
providing more than 50% more calories per day than the next highest food, corn. And just like that, former Haitian farmers streamed into new factories and production facilities, overnight turning Haiti from a subsistence farming society to a gleaming modern country. Right? Wrong. Let's not pretend that Haiti is the United States with a 3.6% unemployment rate. Haiti's unemployment rate is, and was, astronomical. There just wasn't any demand for manufacturing plants in Haiti. Companies didn't want to build in the country. The political situation, the lack of roads or reliable ports. Even before this, there was already a large quantity of unemployed people, and adding a bunch of farmers to the mix wasn't going to change that. Quickly, year by year, the problem became bigger. Haiti was producing less and less rice. Today, 80 to 90% of Haitian rice is imported. That small country of 11 million people is consistently the second or third largest export partner for U.S. rice. It is the final destination of 10% of U.S. rice that is exported and generates around $200 million in revenue for the U.S. rice industry. At the same time, the amount of rice that the average Haitian ate per year tripled from 1985 to 2011. This change in the Haitian diet wreaked havoc on other crop growers. This change in the Haitian diet wreaked havoc on other crop farmers, all the way from corn to potatoes and everything in between. Haiti was soon no longer able to feed itself. Before I moved to Haiti, I had some experience with how a cheap food product could affect a country's dietary choices and how hard that was to change. In my residency, I spent a month working on the Navajo Nation. That's one of the Indian reservations in Arizona. It was an interesting time, but one thing that fascinated me was the cuisine. The specialty in the town where I was staying was something called fried bread. This would be a combination of fried flour and lard, and it would often be served with canned meat. I can remember walking around the grocery store on the reservation and seeing an entire aisle of different flavors of Spam. And it was confusing. Why was this the case? Well, a small amount of research told the answer. As the tribes were being forcibly moved from the east and out to their reservations, the U.S. government had provided rations to prevent starvation. And these consisted of three foods. You guessed it, flour, lard, and spam. People's tastes can be trained. In the same way that the Navajo were force-fed flour, lard, and spam until it became part of their culture, Haitians have economically been force-fed rice. It is now embedded in the culture. But unfortunately, Haiti is not capable of feeding that desire. Even outside of the destruction of the industry from competition, there's just a limit to how much can be produced in the country. Rice really only should have ever been a small part of the diet, one that traditionally mostly consisted of corn and potatoes that could be grown at scale in the country. But people's tastes and cultures are hard to change, especially when doing so would mean spending more instead of buying cheap imported food. This is a much deeper story than the U.S. simply providing food relief to another country. That wasn't really the primary story or even the primary motivation. The goal, perhaps misguided, was to help Haiti catch up to other countries that were rapidly developing. But there was a failure to understand the situation, to realize both the ramifications of actions and that there were a number of other issues, education, infrastructure, health, political stability, that would need to be remedied before Haiti could make an economic jump. And now we are left with a country that cannot feed itself. 
Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history, and there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.